ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Oh yes, they've let me out of the studio again. I'm Lisa Leong and this week I've been in Sydney for South by Southwest and have I got a treat for you. This Working Life did a live podcast event. The topic, one close to your heart. Why peak performance is dead, how to build teams for the long haul. And we caught some of you on tape in the line outside. Trying to manufacture people to be a peak performer, whatever that means, instead of just paying attention to human connection and meaning in work. There's a bar that's set, but are you going to meet it? No idea. And I think that that's horrible because if you work to an unattainable ideal, then there's nothing to congratulate yourself for. I've never had experience of burnout. I try to find a balance. So let's see what I can learn, something new, some new recommendation. Understand also how can I help others as well. Round of applause for Ben Crow, please. Ben Crow, famously known as Ash Barty's mindset coach, but he's helped so, so many sports people, corporate athletes like your good selves. Our beautiful second panellist here is Aubrey Blanche. Thank you, Aubrey. Come on down. Now, Aubrey is a member of Culture Amp. She is people and operations. She also looks after their strategic programs. But really, I know her as this beautiful intersection of technology, data, but also diversity and inclusion. So she's going to round out this conversation by looking a little bit about results and data and the role that that can play. So we're connecting this idea of peak performance, an old concept which is not serving us anymore and the fact that it leads to burnout. Aubrey, can you share the moment when you found yourself in a bathroom stall, you're crying your eyes out and your manager's in there with you? Yeah, so um, picture this. I'm in the gender-inclusive single-stall bathroom that I had just insisted were installed on all of the floors in the new San Francisco office. And um, I had just been in a meeting building a deck for the board of directors and just completely lost it. Um, and I like ran out of the room into the bathroom. My manager like follows me and gets in there and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, what if a trans employee has to pee right now and I'm having a <laughs> breakdown? Um, and But basically what had happened was that I was a team of one and the company had grown by 4X and I was still holding myself to the same standards of the company meeting their public DEI commitments while I had had budget cut and no additional headcount given to me. And so really what that came down to was I held myself to an expectation that was not physically capable of achieving, but I was so scared of admitting that I didn't have what I needed that I took it all on myself. I didn't say... I can only do X with what's been given, right? I didn't set a boundary. And so again, yeah, I ended up sobbing in a, in a single stall bathroom. Ben, I also want you to share your story of burnout because you had a few in the last 10 (laughs) months, but um, let's talk about the one in New York. 
uh, COVID's been pretty crazy. I went from doing one talk a week to four talks a day for two years. Um, and then May this year, I was halfway through a three-month uh, roadshow uh, rolling out the uh, the Mojo app. And uh, it was going incredibly well and but doing a lot of talks as well and also continuing my mentoring. And the, the way we met, the way I mentor anyway, I do two sessions with a client and it typically goes for about 10 hours and they're pretty intense. And then it's just maintenance after that. So it might just be for an hour kind of check-ins if they're having a crucible moment or a breakdown in a uh, Grand Slam final or a CEO's having, having issues um, at home. So it's, it's, it's pretty ad hoc. And typically it might be just once a year, right, or once every two years. But it means I, my clients never end, which means I have pretty much over 150 clients. Over 150, and, that's a lot. But, you know, and, and then occasionally, <laughs> yeah. they, and as, as it happened, they all, all can contact you at the same time. And <laughs> that's, that's what happened. And... Um, I remember it distinctly. I woke up and I had like 17 messages and then they were quite shitty, the clients, but I also had quite shitty staff at, at home. You? At me, you couldn't, uh. couldn't access me. I had shitty kids and a <laughs> shitty wife. And I remember I was on the bed in New York on my own crying. I actually mm. hit rock bottom. Um, and actually, yeah, I remember thinking I'm burnt out or I'm depressed, mm. um, doing a bit of self-analysis. But yeah, um, that was probably the last time. So we're telling these stories because these are human experiences and just to know that we're here sharing the experience of you both, both as experts but also as human beings and people who experience it as well. So there's no sort of a perfect solution here. But I'd love to look at the role of expectations and what they played in your own performance and then subsequent burnout, Ben. I didn't create a boundary for myself to protect mm. myself, which is effectively FOPO. What is FOPO for anyone who hasn't heard of it? So, I love it. Yeah, FOMO and FOPO. FOPO is the fear of other people's opinions. For me, it's understanding the difference between goals and expectations. Right? We should all have goals and dreams and big dreams and put them out in the universe and chase them down as hard as we can. That's just called living. But there's no guarantees, there's no promises, there's no expectations we'll actually achieve those. Aubrey, let's talk about company expectations then. So when you got to that moment in the bathroom stall, you said you were leading an initiative and you had company expectations. Now, this is really interesting because, you know, we work and companies will always have expectations. So what effect did that have on you? I think I took them all on myself. So this company had built up a brand as a company that cared about diversity, equity and inclusion, but it turned out that they stopped caring about resourcing that problem. So they really loved the public accolades, but weren't actually willing to like do the work internally to make that. And instead of what would have been helpful was reset the expectations about what's possible and what they can claim based on the dollars or the people or you know what those resources are. I just took personal responsibility for shoving the company into meeting its expectations, which it turns out is not actually possible. Um, but it also also was completely unsustainable because I took it as like a moral and personal failing that that public perception and that internal reality were different. Like that was a personal issue as opposed to like a structural or environmental problem. Okay, so we've established the problem here. Let's look at what we can really do around this. And I want to use uh, Richmond Football Club as a bit of a case study here. Now, Peggy O'Neill, who was uh, former president of the Richmond Football Club, took them to three premierships as a leader. But 2016, not a great year, actually, for Richmond Football Club. Bit of a pile on. What was happening? Yeah, yeah it was a basket case, um, Richmond. They didn't have one external lobby group trying to sack Peggy and sack the board and 
Sack, the captain, the coach, they had three. It was like a Monty Python made Seinfeld skit, right? It was just it was just crazy. And Richmond had been caught up in the demon of expectations for 30 years. They had a lot of success in the 70s and 80s and their slogan was actually, eat them alive. Yeah. And Peggy said to me, well, actually it became, eat your own. Yeah. It became ruthless, um, mm. caught up in emotional pressure, um, all these expectations that weren't being lived up to and so forth. And yeah, it was a bit of a disastrous year. They identified connection or disconnection as the major issue facing that particular organisation and most of our organisations as well. So Peggy and Brennan and the coach and the captain, Damien and Trent, went on this journey around connection and they prioritised authenticity, vulnerability and storytelling and play and purpose and potential, the three intrinsic motivation ingredients to create this connection. And it was extraordinary what happened when they... And it's political suicide if the leaders don't do it first. So it had to be the four leaders had to embrace these principles because it's a, it's a waste of time, right? Because you don't have, you know, psychological safety if they don't. I remember their captain, Trent Cochin, on January the 10th, 2017, he got up in front of all these alpha males and he said, I'm so sorry. For the last five years, I thought I had to be this perfect captain, this perfect leader with this perfect pre-match address. And I'm here today to tell you that I'm not. I'm imperfect and I'm full of struggle and i shitting myself and I can't do this on my own. And he went from unofficially voted the worst captain in the AFL to officially voted the best captain in the AFL because they won three of the next four premierships. But the reason that was so powerful, because in that moment when he got up on stage, when he took off his mask and his arm and he revealed himself, he found his vulnerabilities, what happened is he created safety and permission for everyone else to do the same thing. And that unlocked this incredible connection that has been so celebrated at Richmond that Peggy was championing beyond everyone, right? And she even brought Brené Brown out to, uh, to meet the players and the, and, the, and the coaches and so forth. So rather than peak performance and expectations and expectations and focusing on the result, which clearly had no success, they went counterintuitively internal, focused on things they could control, didn't listen to the noise of all these lobby groups, but found their voice and found these beautiful mantras like humble and hungry and you're either winning or learning and just created these symbols and rituals that was just, just created this beautiful connection. But it was predicated on imperfection, on vulnerability, on love. Like these counterintuitive principles you don't think about when you think about peak performance, right? We're human. <laughs> yeah. And I think they, they understood that. They created a much more beautiful formula, yeah. There's a real theme around this focus on results and moving from results to relationship because when you only focus on results then you have you're not performing therefore sack the coach sack Peggy sack everyone right yeah um, and, and moving that beautifully into relationship which you've shown in connection Aubrey I'd love your experience here on the role that focusing on results plays especially with data and how you view data and results in the context of relationship. Yeah, so I think about this with my team because so my team is accountable for things like ensuring equity of experience or making sure that culture amps operations are planet positive. And it turns out that those are outcomes that we cannot control completely. And so I think it's really important. We talk constantly, my team sets goals every year, but we always talk about the fact that those results or the goals are feedback about how we've approached the problem. So yes, in some way, like as I want you to hit 
hit those goals as a part of your job. But I try really hard to focus on what my team can control, which is the process they're going through to get there. And so my hope, um, they're not in the room today, so I don't want to give myself a grade as a manager, but I think <laughs> that was that was learned from me failing to do that for myself. So my team is benefiting from like all the gifts I never gave myself when I was self-managing. And so I think it's about that is when you focus on the process and you let people know that like you have not failed me if you don't get to this result. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to penalize you. The strength of our relationship is not predicated on you meeting some standard that we've set. And so how do I switch from an expectation to learning Mm. to say like, oh, if you miss this goal, that's feedback that we didn't invest the right way or in the right amount. Suddenly, one, my team gets more creative and like they're more interested in their jobs, but it also means that my team members have space to be people. ABC This Working Life, we're recording live at South by Southwest. Cheer from the audience. We're speaking with Ben Crow, famously called Ash Barty's Mindset Coach, and Aubrey Blanche, who's from Culture Amp, who's also called the Math Path. So she's Math and empathy, so blending that together. And I'm Lisa Leong, I'm the host of This Working Life and our producer Zoe Ferguson is here today as well. There's a bit of a compassionate challenge which is forming here, which is that you can't possibly be saying that results don't matter though, because they do matter. If Richmond hadn't have won those three premierships, we wouldn't be talking about this story. Same with Ash Barty. Mm. So what do we do with that? I don't have a client on the planet who's not results obsessed they just realise that they can't control the outcome. From a leadership point of view, whether you're a parent or whether you're a leader, right, you reward the process, you don't reward the outcome because otherwise we believe, especially young kids, it's conditional. It's conditional on winning, getting in the A team or getting an A and so forth as opposed to the intrinsic. That's why the six most powerful words our coaches say to their, or, or parents say to their kids is, I love to watch you play. It's unconditional. I loved it how you problem solved. You tapped into curiosity and creativity. These are intrinsic motivations and these are things we can control. I think, or you said they're values-based as opposed to the outcome. You still have goals. You're still results-driven, but you can't control them. So you focus on things you can control to achieve those results. Uh, what do we say as leaders, though? We don't go, oh, I love the way you typed that email. That's great effort. Are we saying that? Probably not. You're probably you're loving the um, curiosity, the playful creativity, the problem-solving, the adaptation, the innovation and so forth. Yeah, you, so you're rewarding those things more so than, you know... The well, look, let's look at values then. So how do we connect values and performance? Yeah, I didn't realise values were actually a performance. But when I thought about it, the most successful teams in the world and organisations, they're values-based, they're purpose-driven and they're performance-focused. Performance is only one aspect of it. Until um, 2021, Ash Barty had a bit of an issue at the Australian Open. I remember she was very teary at this cafe in Brisbane and she goes, I've, I've had it, Crowe, it's, it's COVID, I've got to go away for the whole year now. And she's really teary and one of the exercises we hadn't done was her values. Um, so we identified her values, which is love, courage and resilience and she defines resilience as a grit. And I think if we can create boundaries for ourselves, that's where the freedom is. We let go of that FOPO that we mentioned at the start and we just go on our own hero's journey and permission to be imperfect, 
permission to screw it up, permission to get it wrong. But she said to me the whole long, it was her values that got her through. Um, and I didn't realise that values could actually be performance enhancing. Once you understand how you can interpret them in a behavioural sense, they're pretty powerful. So I want to talk about your own values here. So, Ben, you have publicly spoken about your dad. Um, he died when you were 16 years old. How did that help form the values that you hold true today and, in fact, they form the basis of your own performance? Yeah, totally, and, and my work as well. So if I'm helping someone establish their own values, I'll ask them a question, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? They'll tell me a story and then the second question will be, what got you through it? <laughs> Because typically what gets you through the toughest moments of your life is where your values are hidden because you had to draw down on some energy source to get through this crucible moment. So for me, obviously, my dad was my greatest role model and he had a heart attack and died when he was 16. And what got me through it was the love of my family, first and foremost, and, and friends and my mum in particular. Um, so love is a, is, a, is a core value of mine. Courage is the second one. But it wasn't my courage. It was the courage that I saw on my mum who picked up my dad's company she hadn't worked a day of her life in this company and, you know, just lost her soulmate. But she had six kids. I was the youngest of six and she kept working just to get us through school and get us through college and, and so forth. And I'd, I'd hear her, my bedroom was next to hers and I'd hear her cry herself to sleep at night, but never complain. Um, I mean, getting teary now. Um, and so courage was the second one. And my dad was a real larrikin. Um, and I found it extraordinary how he had this playfulness about him and he would just... He wouldn't take himself seriously, take life seriously, but not himself seriously. And so it's changed over the, over the, the years, the definition, but play would be my third value and just playing with life. And, you know, there's not a shred of evidence in favour of the idea that life is serious. So getting more playful, not table tennis playful, but just more creative, more curious, having fun, finding any opportunity to have a belly laugh, uh, you know, at my own expense or, or, or so forth. But, um, yeah, so love, courage and play. Um, and I just have this curiosity of how I can bring them to life in as many ways as possible. Aubrey, now you are, I mean, you've got an incredible background and you bring many different perspectives, uh, especially in the diversity space. And so on my list I have Latina, bipolar, queer and adopted. But you present as a white female. So you have this incredible perspective, this duality to you. Can you talk about your upbringing and who you are and how that has formed your values? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, I, t I constantly make jokes about like passing, like I pass for all these things that like I don't necessarily identify with. And like the most obvious one is like I carry all of this white privilege and like folks can see me in the room, that's very clear. But I also like am really aware that that's very conditional. Like if people know I'm Mexican, it often like will change the way I'm treated. And so for me, it's that what I call having liminal identities. So identities that like exist at the barrier between the two categories. And I think that's really underlaid a lot of, so my values, I would say, are empathy, curiosity, and rigor. And for me, the empathy piece is I always struggled to find people who reflected my experiences, and that didn't feel good. And so I try not to be that person for someone else. I also think, you know, for example, I have a 
pretty severe psychiatric condition, but bipolar isn't visible unless I'm being hospitalized. And so I like to think that it allows me to have a perspective on each side of the line. And even though I don't have every perspective, I think that me going, oh, there's one little slice of that that I do get so I can meet you in a more empathetic way. I never assume that I know all of your experience, but I have that little sand grain that's a start so that I can show up more compassionate. And I think that also links to curiosity, right? It's like, I know a sliver, but I know that I don't know everything. And so that's incumbent on me to ask questions, to listen, and hopefully to model that for other people. And the rigor piece goes back to like the math path, like the mathy part of it is that I want to take a very analytical frame to things as well. So use and have respect for that sort of softer emotional side. But what does that tell us about systems and about patterns and about the human experience and how we can we ground it in this like generalizability as well? So your unique story matters, but also what do we learn about like humanity from that? And I, I guess I figure all of that adds up to like the more that I understand humans, the better I'm able to be a good one. Um, and that's like, I would say if, if I got to the end of it and I could be like, I've been a good human, that to me would have been like nailing my values. Thank you both so for sharing your stories and role modeling that vulnerability. Thank you so much. Um, I want to then build on that to talk about, so how do we build these teams, these so-called high-performing team, but we're going to take umbrage with that, because these high-performing teams feel quite brittle at the moment. And this push to assimilate to be a good team member where you leave your whole self behind, that's not working anymore. So how might we build these beautiful teams where you can bring your whole selves to work, but still be, you know, getting hopefully uh, the best out of people is the way I'd put it, be in flow. Ben, do you want to kick off? Yeah, um, for, for me, um, and it's a, again, it's a leadership role, is to get to know your people on a, on a very human level. There was a, a framework that we used at Richmond in 2017 called the Triple H. Every meeting, someone would get up and tell three stories about themselves, who their hero is, a hardship from their life and a highlight from their life. And when you see someone get up on stage and take the mask and armour off and, and reveal themselves in that way, it creates this relatability, not on a transactional level or Richmond level, on a human level. And that gives permission to be authentic because fitting in and belonging are diametrically opposed. If I don't feel I can be, I'll try and fit in, which is the opposite of belonging, right? Which is the opposite of connection. I, I, I can't be myself. I have to fit into what I think other people's expectations are. But if you can create that authenticity, right, that also creates that curiosity and creates this permission to be me and permission to be real and, and permission to be open-minded and, and so forth. And you've got that vulnerability kind of connection that starts with the leaders. It's extraordinarily powerful for creating that MIT did a whole study on it for two years. They tracked the most successful teams in the world and they tracked it down to what they called belonging cues. And belonging cues are these behaviours that make you feel, feel safe, right? And one of the first ones is just eye contact, right? Um, but, but we're on our phones, we're distracted and so forth, and we don't make eye contact anymore. So, yeah, from uh, I think getting to know your people on a very human level um, because we're all different and we all relate to different things and we all get motivated by different things as well. So, yeah. 
We'll yeah. I think it also comes down to really knowing people. My like underlying expectation is everyone is capable of peak performance. Like I treat people as if I believe that's true about them. But you have to know how to set the boundaries and how to know how that shows up for them. And you have to really get them to inculcate the idea that peak performance is a moment in time. It's not a sustainable state. Performance needs to be more like a sine curve than it does anything else. And I think you also need to, in order to get people to get to that peak, you have to give them permission to not be there. Knowing that people are going to show up differently in how they want to perform and trying to be really thoughtful about knowing them and then giving them what they need to perform. Because even people with similar personality types, because they have different stories that they bring in, are going to need different things at different times. So that's what I'd say. It's about being flexible, but also being really, really clear about when you don't have to perform. So when people are on, they actually have the capacity to do it. Just double-clicking on that one, I think the number one mistake leaders make, in my opinion, all over the world, is they think it's about them. And leadership has nothing to do with you. Leadership has everything to do with creating an environment to help others realise their potential, to care, you know, to care about them, to serve them, to love them, to be interested, not interesting, as Aubrey you know, demonstrates there. Right? And I think once we realise that it's not about me, because when you get technically trained in something, it is about you. But when you become a leader, it's almost got to be this stake in the ground. It's, like, it's no longer about you, because that's when empathy and compassion and all these... You know, when you, and when you, when you realise that, it also takes the pressure off. I don't have to have the answers. My job is to create an environment where together we get the answers. And I think that's probably one of the mistakes from a, a leadership point of view is imposter syndrome and all these other things kind of thinking I have to be the person that has all the answers here. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to thank Ben Crow and Aubrey Blanche. And, and Lisa, everyone. Please I'm Lisa Leong. Thank you for listening to This Working Life and for coming to South by Southwest if you are in the room. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's produced by Zoe Ferguson and mixed by John Jacobs and Matthew Crawford. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.